Let's head across to the United States. Now we're going to have a chat to Celeste Katz-Marston, one of Red's regular, Rod's regulars, who's uh, in Boston this morning. Hello, Celeste. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, very interesting week for you in the United States this week. I see you have a gift for understatement. <laughs> it's been a... Well, first of all, the election was just compelling viewing. I couldn't take myself away from the screen. Uh, the way it played out, the fact that Donald Trump had such a large lead to start with and then it just kept getting pulled back and pulled back until eventually, uh, you know, they lost Georgia flipped and then Pennsylvania flipped and Biden came out the other side with the most votes. But uh, what's happened since then is got a lot of people scratching their heads. Yeah, basically the president has refused to concede the election to Joe Biden. He still insists uh, up to this very, very moment uh, that he has won or that he will be uh, proven to have won when all the quote-unquote legal votes have counted. He's sort of lashing out right now in a lot of different directions. He's angry at the media. He's angry at the people who count the votes. He's, uh, he's angry at a lot of people, but uh, he himself uh, uh, seems to be the guy who has done all the right things at the right time and uh, is just being ripped off. That's his position. Yeah, it's a tough gig, isn't it? <laughs> he certainly hasn't held back in uh, putting his views forward The fact that he says the election's been stolen from him uh, They've mounted a, a lot of legal challenges And put a lot of uh, court cases out there None of which are proving to bear any fruit Yeah, I mean, basically what what his legal strategy seems to be From, from what I understand and from uh, what I've read Is just uh, kind of throwing everything at the wall right now yeah. It was It was kind of confusing early on where he was sort of encouraging his supporters to to push for more vote counting in some places and to stop vote counting in other places, obviously depending on whether it would be advantageous to him. Um, but as you say, a lot of these court cases uh, or these legal challenges really aren't getting any traction. And even people in the Republican Party, some people you would think would be supportive of him, you know, I mean, they may understand his political ambitions, but they're just not... Uh, ready to go as far as he is in saying that there was some sort of widespread fraud or tampering with the election that would actually make him the winner. It's, we just are not seeing evidence of that at all. We hear a lot that uh, you know, the most of the people who vote, voted for Donald Trump actually believe it, believe there was some sort of a election fraud or there's been some subterfuge going on. Then it depends what statistics you hear. Then you hear as well that half of the Republicans actually don't believe and believe Biden did win fairly. Do you think, um, he, as, as far as the, his Republican base goes, do you think Donald Trump is losing any friends or voters perhaps? I think that there are, um, you know, there are some people who are willing to accept. They may be sad that he lost, but they're willing to accept that he lost and they want to move on. Uh, you know, the government has work to do. Obviously, we're in the middle of a of a deadly pandemic where we're seeing record numbers of new cases every day. Deaths continue in this country. And, uh, you know, people want to sort of get that under control and then get back to their normal lives because we still haven't accomplished that either. Kids are still studying remotely. People are still working from home. Businesses are under restrictions um, and so on. But this country is in sort of a, a, a very weird and uncomfortable and, and uh, nerve-wracking position right now. I think some people just want to move on from the politics and, and look at these issues that are literally affecting their lives. I mean, Joe Biden made a, made a point uh, in his 
acceptance speech, if we could call it that, um, that he's going to let science uh, dictate the way they tackle the coronavirus. Uh, across the board, uh, masks and uh, you know the way that they're talking about opening up funding and stuff, it's a very different approach to the one that Donald Trump adopted. Yeah, and look, there are people in this country who are concerned about what Joe Biden might do to to tackle the virus when he gets into office. One of those things may be another national pause or a lockdown or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, restrictions on people going outside, interacting, um, you know, going about their business the way we usually would if there wasn't a virus uh, spreading through the country like wildfire. But, you know, being upset that Joe Biden uh, is going to be president is not necessarily stopping that train. So, um, I, I think that there are definitely people who don't want to see uh, Joe Biden become president. He was not their choice when they went to vote. But, you know, that sort of um, it doesn't stop some of the same people from understanding that their guy lost and it's time to move on, at least for now. Do you, are you a little bit surprised that the, the uh, COVID-19 wasn't a bigger election issue, especially amongst Republican voters, especially in a pocket like Florida, a state like Florida, that's got a lot of uh, older people who are obviously vulnerable uh, to something like COVID? Uh, are you a bit surprised that it wasn't a bigger issue? I mean, I think it was an issue. I mean, am I surprised? It's a tough question. I think that in looking at everything about Donald Trump in the you know the years that I've covered him, and I knew him from before in New York, where he was a big figure in real estate and you know, television and so on, he was definitely there before he ran for president. I think that covering Donald Trump is not covering it's not like covering other candidates. And so when you look at how people behave towards him in a political arena, there's a very high degree of personal charisma and personal attraction or association that people have with him. I mean, people knew him as the, the star of Celebrity Apprentice long before they knew him as the man in the White House. So, uh, you know, a lot of the issues that you might think would have had um, a much, much greater impact, like COVID-19 and elections, Donald Trump's personal attraction for a lot of people does tend to tamp down the importance of some of those issues or drown them out, because he's also constantly messaging directly to his base without sort of the quote-unquote interference of the media getting in his way. You mentioned before that he's got a lot of charisma and the, the other Republicans in the party uh, just sort of playing along because of that. They're, I'd imagine there's an element of fear there as well, that uh, they're a little bit scared of, of Donald. But uh, again, are you surprised that more Republicans haven't disassociated themselves from uh, his stance now that the, the election's a week old? Um, you know, I'm not that surprised, to be honest with you. I think that, uh, you know, certain people have come out and tried to make some overtures to Biden. Not a lot, but uh, figures like Mitt Romney, uh, somebody I covered when he ran for president, actually both times, um, you know, came out and said that he's ready to work with Biden. Um, people are looking at that and saying, oh, well, you know, a guy like Mitt Romney. But Mitt Romney does certainly not owe his political successes to Donald Trump. There are a lot of people in the Republican Party right now who do. And Romney, I bring him up because he made an important point recently that no matter what happens to Donald Trump, he said he's going to remain the quote-unquote 900-pound gorilla when it comes to the Republican Party going ahead. He'll still be something of a kingmaker. His endorsement still will matter to a lot of people, including the well over 70 million people in this country who just voted for him to be president for a second term. 
So I'm really not that surprised that a lot of Republicans are trying to treat this cautiously. It's not a dangerous political position to say that all the votes should be counted. They should all be counted. Um, I think people are trying to walk a line between sort of assuaging um, you know, Trump's concerns with that, but not going overboard and claiming that there was out-and-out fraud, because that might mean that their election wasn't, uh, wasn't valid either. One of the things that I think shocked a lot of Australians, and we've been seeing it happen uh, in for the, over the past two years, is the difference between the, the networks, how they're covering it, of course, the difference between CNN and the Fox network. Uh, it was really highlighted and underlined and still is being that uh, in, through the election and, and what's t- taking place after it. Uh, does that division between those two news services, is that sort of reflective of the division that affects uh, America, you know, uh, uh, greater America, if you like? Yeah, and that's actually something I've been writing about lately. I've been writing for Neiman Reports, which is part of the Neiman Foundation at Harvard that looks at a lot of, of these big issues in journalism. And, you know, one thing we've seen here, certainly, and it may be true, you know, all over the world to different degrees, is that people are really getting to a point where they're kind of siloing themselves when it comes to their news coverage. I always think of my father, who told me a long time ago that people read newspapers to confirm what they already think. They don't want to be challenged with new information or with viewpoints that, that are not consistent with their own. And so what you see um, in a lot of the coverage leading up to the election, at least, was you know people felt that um, Fox was being somewhat more solicitous of the president. Not always, but frequently, whereas uh, MSNBC or CNN would be much more obvious. Um, you know, you would see uh, you know different different attitudes towards the president. It's important to remember, of course, that Fox News was the the, uh, the network with the decision desk that called Arizona, typically a very red state, for Joe Biden, and that enraged the president. Even this morning, he's out there tweeting heavily to tell people to stop watching Fox News, to drop them, you know, as if they they had something to do with him losing this election, and he's encouraging them to go over to these very conservative, relatively new sites like One America News, which um, frankly runs a lot of news that other networks simply would not run because it, it doesn't meet their standards. But yeah, I think that you know, people, are, people are looking at this election and saying, okay, somebody won and somebody lost, but the country is still incredibly divided. What, what this country really needed, just to sum up, was you know, a mandate, somebody to win overwhelmingly one way or the other. And that just didn't happen. And so people are going to be looking across the street at somebody who is, you know, their neighbor, but holds incredibly, like, diametrically opposed views to their own. And that, that's not good for the country either. I know uh, Donald got a lot of votes, but there was still a five million uh, vote gap between the two candidates. So, uh, you know, uh, he obviously, um, and, and, the, and the turnout was enormous, especially considering the, the conditions that people had to vote in. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, it does sort of, uh, as you say, there's this division there between uh, the, the two different camps. And I, I was just a little bit shocked uh, when we were watching it and in real time to switch between CNN and, and Fox and to see the difference in uh, the way they were reporting the election. It was, it was quite marked and a little bit shocking. In that, though, uh, the Fox News seems to be split into two. There's the Fox News area who seem, they're pretty journalistic and they seem to have a, fair, a bit of quality control there. And the, then there's the Fox Opinion journalists, if we could call them journalists, who, again, just a open barrage and it's, it's all spouting opinion and not much fact. So, But that going back to that decision about calling Arizona, 
that was very odd, wasn't it? Well, I mean, that was the, the guy who runs that decision, the decision desk there, R. in Michigan. You know, he just said, "Look, this, um, this is what I'm calling because uh, this is what this tells me. You know, this is what the data tells me that um, Donald Trump is not going to be able to catch up to Joe Biden based on the number of votes Biden has and the number of votes that have not yet been counted." That he just said it was statistically, it was it was not possible for Donald Trump to come from behind and and win that contest. And you know, at some point there was a big discussion at least in the Twitterverse, of whether Fox News had actually rescinded or retracted that call. And they said they had not, that this is what they were going with. Um, you know, did some people view that as kind of a turning point in the election? I don't think that Fox News making that call at that hour changed the results of the election. You know, obviously people had already voted. There's, you know, voted, votes were being tabulated and so on. But I think the president took it extremely personally, and you're seeing that right now. He hasn't... He hasn't talked a lot in public since the election, but he's tweeting very heavily, very angrily against Fox News right now. Yeah, look, uh, you know, as I said, that call was a bit of an odd one, um, and the two different uh, camps, the CNN and Fox News, very different ways of portraying the news. You said it was a close election, but, I mean, if if Biden ends up winning um, Georgia, Arizona uh, and Pennsylvania, all four of the states that are in question, Nevada as well, there will be a fairly significant margin, so that will produce a fairly outright lead as far as the the electoral college system votes go. Oh yeah, there's no there's no question that that if everything keeps going the way it has been going, you know that Biden comes into the the meeting of the electoral college on December fourteenth with you know well comfortably above the the two seventy uh, electoral votes that he needs to win the electoral college and become president of the United States. But, you know, look, it's good for people to, to uh, express their views. People are going to disagree. That's fine. I'm more thinking back to the time of, you know, say, Ronald Reagan. You know, uh, Joe Biden got more votes, uh, you know, than any U.S. presidential candidate, supposedly, in, in U.S. history. Like, that's how it's going right now. Ronald Reagan won 49 out of 50 states. In 1984. Now, that's what I would consider a mandate. That was just a country in agreement. Joe Biden will have to work harder, and he's acknowledged this, to get the people who did not vote for him uh, to listen to him and to accept him as as commander-in-chief. And uh, he sounds like he's ready to take on that challenge, but it will be a lot of work. It will be indeed. Uh, Now, you know, we're talking about uh, during the week, a lot of people were critical of Donald Trump getting rid of a few senior aides and getting right in the Pentagon at the upper levels and you know, appointing new staff. Um, is, th- is there any fear in that? I mean, is, he just, is this just a wrecking ball being taken to the administration on the way out? We hear also that it may be because they're trying to protect information or cover tracks of some of the things that went on in the last four years. They also uh, say that it could be just a, a money-making thing, that they're actually trying to raise money uh, for to cover the, some of the debts. Um, what, what do you think is at the base of it? Well, I think that, you know, trying to maintain an organizational chart of the Trump White House is, uh, is an exercise in futility from, from what we see. I mean, there are, there, there's a, a very uh, busy revolving door in that administration. He is somebody who, who gets angry with people and pushes them out. He brings somebody in. He gets tired of them when they don't do what he thought they were going to do. And, you know, that's kind of a normal thing for him. Uh, there definitely is some discussion that this entire legal challenge to uh, 
uh, to the outcome of the election is about raising money to uh, to pay down the debt of the campaign. The campaign has had money problems for a while. Um, you know, raising huge amounts of money doesn't mean you have huge amounts of money if you're burning through it on a lot of stuff at the same time. So that's definitely true. I think that the the sort of overarching uh, impression that you get of the Trump administration is disorder. Uh, you know, a lot of these questions that you're asking are really good, and they're really hard to answer because it's hard to know exactly what their plan is. You know, their plan sometimes seems to be to have no plan or to try to have every plan and execute it on it at the same time. There were discussions during the, uh, the aftermath of the campaign that it was sort of not really clear even who was supposed to be in charge of the legal, uh, the legal challenges to voting in different states or practices in the different states. You know, is there, is there really anybody behind the wheel here? And if it's not Trump, why not? Is it because he's supposed to be running the country, which is his day job, or just because there is no ability to kind of build up a team and to, to have a plan and to, to follow through on it no matter, you know, no matter what the result? It's, uh, it's very confusing is the real thing. And then I think sometimes people are just sort of frustrated with that and tired of the whole thing. That may apply to the president himself. Well, assuming Joe Biden is uh, eventually gets the gig on the 20th of January, we've got a very interesting situation with the Georgia runoff and with control of the Senate. Now, there's two, the Democrats would love to get pick up two seats in Georgia. If they do, then that will give them, uh, with, with, as well as with the vice president's vote, uh, the control of the Senate, which would be helpful for them as far as getting their progressive agenda uh, th- you know, through and enacted upon. Um, what do you think the chances are of those two seat, Senate seats in Georgia actually flipping and going to the Democrats? I'm going to disappoint you on this one because I got out of the prediction business a long time ago. I was just covering politics for many, many years. It's just, it is, it is never a winning bet to bet on these kinds of things. I mean, really, if you think about it, five years ago or six years ago, who would have thought that Donald Trump would seriously have become president of the United States? People just did not see it. All the pollings heavily favored Hillary Clinton. We all know that was sort of, you know, went up the spout. Um, it just, it's very difficult. I mean, certainly you're right, though, that um, winning more, uh, winning more of a majority uh, in the Senate would help Joe Biden because otherwise he's going to be a moderate to progressive leaning president uh, with a Republican Senate that will attempt to block him at every turn. Um, and uh, a fairly conservative Supreme Court if, uh, if it goes to a contest between the two on some of these issues. So Joe Biden, to make no mistake, you know, he won, uh, if he won the election, um, it was not to walk into a job that was going to be all like, uh, you know, sunshine and yeah. puppies and cupcakes. It was always going to be incredibly, a tough game. incredibly sure. bad situation. Yeah. That, that sounds, so you're not going to give me a, a, a prediction at all? It sounds like you've been burned out, Celeste. <laughs> 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 Look, I mean, predictions just there. Uh, there's there's so much going on, and uh, you know, Georgia is an interesting state in itself. Georgia has, uh, you know, going back, has had a lot of uh, really serious issues with their voting, with the voting machines that they've bought, with uh, you know the tabulations of votes, and with paper trails for those votes. 
uh, and so on with closing polling places or opening polling places in different parts yeah. of the state, depending on you know who lives there and so on. Uh, Georgia is a hard one to is a hard one to bet on, and I think I'm going to keep my nose clean on that. You don't even want to have a guess at one of the seats. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, they're, they're, of course they're recounting the vote in Georgia, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there just on that front. But while we're talking about Georgia, we should mention uh, the Democrat uh, activist, I suppose, or who's been working behind the scenes, Stacey Abrahams. Abrams. Now, they suggest that uh, a big part of the success for the Democrats in Georgia was on the back of her hard work. Tell us a little bit about her and where she's come from and what sort of job she's done. Yeah, so Stacey Abrams was somebody that really got people excited uh, in Georgia in 2018 when she ran for governor. And I think a lot of people were super excited at the possibility of having the first black female governor uh, of Georgia, or I believe of any state. Uh, and in the end, it didn't work out. She did lose to Brian Kemp. I believe he was, he was a Republican. I believe he was the Secretary of State of Georgia. Uh, but a lot of people uh, sort of felt like they had to put that energy and that excitement that, that existed around Stacey Abrams into something else, and they wanted to push that out into the next cycle, which of course was where we are today in 2020, and sort of not only uh, getting Donald Trump out of office, but pushing uh, more progressive candidates up and down the ballot. Georgia was, for a long time, considered the reddest of red states, an absolute Republican stronghold. Like, if you, if you were a Republican and you lost in Georgia, you must have been, you know, from, from outer space or something, or you must have had nine heads. It was impossible. And now we're seeing Georgia starting to uh, become, if not, you know, blue, but, you know, becoming at least more purple. And that sort of shifts a real, you know, um, that represents a real shift in uh, American politics and in the South, uh, which was sort of reliably Republican for quite some time. So uh, Stacey Abrams was somebody that was not going to be sort of forgotten or left by the wayside after 2018. And, uh, you know, of course, it remains to be seen what she's going to be doing going forward. She decided after losing that election to put her energy into voting rights and voting engagement. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if we see her again on a ballot in the future. So she's just been uh, running around trying to get people enrolled to vote and working, pulling the strings behind the scenes just to up the Democrat presence in that state. Yeah, she wasn't a candidate in this in this election, but definitely out there trying to mobilize more people. And you know, all the people who didn't vote for her are not are not huge fans uh, in Georgia. But uh, she she was interesting that she became a sort of a national aspirational figure, even though she didn't win that election, by showing that uh, you know an African American woman could be at least on the ballot for a top ticket job in Georgia. And look, uh, the voter turnout in uh, the suburbs around Atlanta certainly very strong, and a lot of people suggest that she, uh, you know, she had a, a lot to do with that as well. Look, we should ask you about the. Can we call it an acceptance speech? The the Biden Harris acceptance speech. Um, what did you think of that? Uh, yeah, you know, I thought it was uh, it was uh, very much um, very much about healing and about. Um, you know, about trying to convince people that Joe Biden would be a president for the entire country, not just for the people who voted for him, that he was going to come in very serious about addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, about 
getting the country back to normal, but, you know, working on the economy and working on COVID, which he says go hand in hand. Um, I think for Kamala Harris, his running mate, the senator from California, who uh, is now the vice president-elect, um, you know, she's there in mainly in a support position, but it certainly couldn't be denied that there was a very powerful, um, th- there's a very powerful emotional draw uh, to the idea of having our first black female vice president, you know, one heartbeat away from presidency and, you know, nothing against a Joe Biden and, you know, hoping for his health and everything. But, you know, Joe Biden is an older guy. He's in his late seventies. He's described himself as a transitional figure in American politics. And so I think people are looking at Kamala Harris as sort of, you know, really the face of the next generation, a next generation uh, in American politics. But, uh, you know, Biden, again, going back to what we were talking about before, understands he has a really, really difficult job. And so it wasn't all just fireworks or balloon drops and confetti. And he wanted to get people ready for the idea that we are going to uh, going to what he has already called, you know, a very dark winter as far as COVID and the economy. And it will be a lot of work to turn both of those things around. I, uh, do you think, because Biden looked a little bit shaky, I thought, in some of the debates. He just didn't look that confident. But since he knows now that he is potentially going to be in the White House soon. It, it appears to me that his confidence has grown a bit and he's, he's speaking a lot better uh, and he's, he's just presenting himself a lot more confidently and it's, it, I suppose it offers a bit of reassurance to Biden fans. Yeah, I think that throughout the throughout the end of the election, uh, you know, early voting, election day, and then in the, the turmoil, he's really been out there trying to be just steady calm, for lack of a better word, presidential. I think that uh, he is really sort of taking a cue from how people have looked at Donald Trump and considered him to be sort of flailing a lot of times, to be angry, uh, to be impetuous. And he's really trying to, uh, you know, evince this sort of very different image, the opposite of all of those things. I think that he, he's sort of suggesting that people want leadership. They want calm. These are dangerous and disturbing times. And I think that he's really just trying to sort of spread this idea among the American people that his presidency will be drastically different from Donald Trump's. That, you know, it will be based on science, as he said. It will be considered. He'll have qualified people around him. He's just uh, named a chief of staff, Ron Klain, who's somebody who's uh, well-known in, in American politics and democratic circles. But, you know, he's going to have people you can trust around him, not his kids and, uh, you know, people who are, are sort of sick of him. And, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see how people respond to it. So far, the response has been reasonable, but, you know, he certainly hasn't even been sworn in yet, so it's hard to say how that's going to go. <laughs> we can only wait and see. Steve in Morty Alexander text to say, does Celeste think Trump is clutching at straws trying to stay in office because he doesn't want to face what awaits him on the outside? Um, you just want to try and answer that one? Well, that's, uh, you know, look, there is, I mean, his, his taxes are still under audit. There are legal cases, uh, you know, being pursued against him. Uh, I think that in a way, most people will probably think that like, oh, Donald Trump will be happy to not be president anymore in a way because being president is a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. And it's not as lucrative as being out there running your own business after you've already been president. I mean, I don't know too many former presidents who are out there sort of, you know, 
standing standing in line at a soup kitchen or anything. Um, but yeah, Donald Trump does have legitimately have stuff to worry about, uh, in, including in the state of New York, where um, there were investigations open against him. Uh, you know, when he finishes with the presidency, um, is that his motivating factor? I'm not sure, but uh, it's a legitimate concern. It's a sort of hard, it's a hard one to read, isn't it? Um, I'll, I'll come back to that in a sec. I've got another text here that says from Jen that says uh, fourteen point. Uh, one or fourteen to fifteen million in a country of three hundred and fifty million is less than five percent of the total of people who voted. Well, that's not right because there was uh, all up there was a hundred and forty million, I suppose. That's what that text meant to say. Uh, it's, it's roughly only about a half of the people. Jen is saying, um, and they're electing the most powerful man. It's laughable, says Jen. Uh, in Australia, we have compulsory voting, so everybody votes. Way different system, obviously, in the United States. But um, it was they're celebrating the the amount of uh, turnout there um, by American uh, election standards. It was a huge turnout. But do you think uh, you need to look a little bit at a different system, perhaps, or not necessarily compulsory voting, but maybe a, a looking at a system that doesn't sort of uh, end up like this, so that we're in this sort of mess between between. Uh, I suppose, uh, the Democrats and the... Well, between changing governments. Yeah, I mean, well, look, uh, there are a lot of Americans who don't exercise their right to vote. It's not... Uh, I mean, as you say, it's not It's not a legal obligation. It's a right. Um, and, uh, you know, would Americans go for compulsory voting? I kind of doubt it. Personally, I'm just not sure. We just don't have the tradition of requiring people to vote, and I think it would be, it would take quite a long time uh, to to instill that idea in the, in the American people, if it worked at all, but there are a lot of things that we can do to make voting easier and faster and more um, efficient in this country. Early voting has taken on, uh, you know, sort of new life in this country has become increasingly popular. Uh, voting by mail, for all that the president likes to complain about it, is something that people have done for a very long time. Absentee voting—that's how people in the military vote. Uh, for example, Americans who live overseas. Uh, there's a lot of things that are being done in terms of automatic voter registration when people go to um, get a driver's license or something. Uh, but, you know, the idea of making voting easier and more accessible to people is not something that this president has always supported, uh, but that uh, should gain more currency, in my opinion, um, making it easier, not harder to vote by giving people, say, early voting, voting on nights, weekends. Um, you know, getting away from the idea of election day as opposed to election season, I think would make voting a lot more palatable and a lot more accessible to people. You know, there are some people, frankly, who would find it hard to take an hour off from work to stand in line. Maybe they can't afford to do that. Maybe they aren't allowed to do that by their employer, whether or not that's okay. So I think the answer in the United States is um, if we're going to change the system, changing it in a way that makes it um, more accessible and more reasonable for everybody to vote if they want to. I think if you do that, a lot of people, you know, you'll find that a lot more people will want to participate in the process. What about uh, in any way um, changing the gerrymander, the fact that uh, the Republicans need only 40, 46% of the vote, whereas the, uh, the other side needs much more because of the way that the Electoral College has been set up and the boundaries. It certainly favours one side rather than the other. Is there any chance, I mean, obviously, if Joe Biden had control of the Senate, uh, then perhaps they might have a chance of changing that. But is that one of the changes that you think would ever happen? 
Look, I mean, independent redistricting is something that's certainly needed in this country. The way districts are drawn and the way uh, people are elected in this country in a lot of places is frankly ridiculous. There's just no question about it. These maps are drawn by people in power to keep them in power. There's just no way around that. Uh, Will that change? It's hard to change because of the very nature of what it is. Uh, why would people who control the system want to blow up the system so they're not in control and potentially not in control anymore, right? It just logically doesn't follow. That's what makes it hard. But, uh, you know, people, uh, people in the United States have pushed for, um, you know, ballot, uh, ballot referendums, ballot questions, uh, where the people are just asked directly, not for their, um, for their elected officials to vote on a certain bill or support a certain policy, but just asked directly, do you think this should be the policies. Do you think this should be the law? I think that that's that's how it gets done. Um, if we get done immediately, I I don't think I think there's going to be a huge fight over it for for all the reasons that I explained. People who have power are not in any rush to give it up, and redistricting is one of the ways people stay in power. Certainly, yes, it's, a, it's been like that for a, for a little while. Uh, I, I saw an interesting uh, interview during the week with the Mooch, who's a pretty interesting <laughs> fella. Scaramucci, we're talking about here. Uh, former White House aide, uh, obviously has turned now and not a big fan of Donald Trump's, but he was uh, made an interesting observation. And I'll, I'll just, I know you don't like predicting what's going to happen, but is there, will Donald Trump be there in four years' time? Or as the Mooch suggested, he's likely to implode before then. There's so many things that uh, would be weighing him down that are going to catch up with him. He suggests that uh, if Donald Trump, is just won't be able to accept being a loser and he will slowly fall apart. Can you see a scenario like that playing out? Could I see the president uh, attempting to launch a bid for re-election in four years? Yes. Uh, yeah, I could. I could. But, I mean, I think that a lot of this, frankly, I'm, and look, I'm, I'm not in the guy's head. I'm not a mind reader and I really hate the sort of Trump whisperer genre of reporting. I really dislike that stuff. I think it's, it's sort of arrogant and preposterous, frankly. But look, there, there are serious questions about whether Trump likes winning or Trump likes leading uh, in terms of presidential politics. I think that he does feed off the crowd, the excitement of the rallies of people screaming his name and holding up signs and wearing T-shirts with his face on. I, I mean, you, could, you can see for yourself that this is something that gets him energized. And he's, you know, talked about, about loving that, that aspect of campaigning. But do you Does think... Has he necessarily, you know, enjoyed being, the work of being president? Sure. I'm, I'm not, that is not as clear to me. He enjoyed the attention, but uh, it doesn't look like he's going to get a gig on Fox News in a hurry. Um, and <laughs> well, as you said, isn't he that might... a hot question? What if, what if he didn't like Fox News anymore? What if he started his own television network? Well, yeah, that would would it attract that many voters? I mean, it's not that easy a thing to do, is it, to start up a television network? And no, it's super hard, which is why it's interesting that even now he's looking at these sort of fledgling networks like One America, which again is super far to the right um, and runs stuff that other networks would not run. But you know, does he become a commentator? Does he become sort of the next Rush Limbaugh type commentator? Um, does he does he need and want a platform for people to listen to him uh, when he's no longer in office? It's, it's very hard to believe that that uh, Donald Trump will be in keeping with other former presidents in sort of letting the next guy have his crack at it. I think that you probably will not see very much of that. Um, 
could Trump try to launch an effort to, to run again in 2024? Yeah, he could. But I mean, is it worth the effort and the trouble, or does he just want to be out there making money and enjoying his life and being able to comment without actually having a, uh, his hand on the tiller? I think that's a strong possibility as well. Do you think there'll be as much interest in his Twitter account <laughs> after his, if he's not president anymore? And, and, and you know, and also for, for him constantly chipping in from the sidelines, do you think that, uh, you know, may, may affect his popularity in the end? I think that at some point um, people people feel like, you know, when you're, when you're not on the stage anymore, you should stop saying. Uh, I think that's reasonable. And, you know, we have a system set up here for the peaceful transfer of power. And when it's your, not your turn anymore, I think there's no law that says you have to stop speaking or that you have to stop helping for that matter. Um, but people usually offer to be an advisor um, to the sitting president after they leave the office. But that's kind of normal. But uh, in Donald Trump's case, I, I just do think that he is going to um, he, he's going to find it very difficult to not be part of the conversation. Does it hurt him with some people? Yeah, probably. Um, but does it hurt him with his most uh, most uh, loyal uh, and and loving base? No, because nothing is going to take those people away from their love of and belief in Donald Trump. Um, you know just look at what's happened in the country over the last four years. There have been a lot of things that Trump has done where people could say, like, look, I, I can't support this guy anymore. And, in, you know, for millions of people, obviously, you don't see that. They think that Donald Trump is right and everybody else is wrong. That's, that's okay with them, and that's certainly okay with Donald Trump. It's been fascinating to watch it from all this distance away and, and watch it sort of objectively. I've got a couple of texts here I'll read you that says, uh, it's a shame that voting in the US isn't regarded as a citizen's civic duty equivalent to jury service. Uh, they are strong on that, says Chris. And also I've got this one from Banjo. Uh, it says, in a country of 300 plus million people, and this is the best they can come up with as the leader of the free world, that is really worrying. Now, I'm not sure if he's talking about Donald Trump or Joe Biden with that text, but uh, I assume it's, it's Donald Trump that he's referring to. What, what is the future for, for Biden? I mean, I don't want to make any predictions, but surely he's going to be inaugurated on January the 20th, the 20th that the legal challenges won't come to anything that, I mean, Donald Trump just can't sort of bury his head in the White House and close the door and say, That's, you're not coming in. Um, there are, you know, there are ways of going about things and there are legal protections, constitutional protections as well. How do you think uh, it's going to play out for the Democrats over the next month? Um, well, I mean, right now Biden is sort of looking at his transition. He's starting to put together a staff that's going to be really, really important, um, you know, who he has around him to help sort of shepherd him through this. But it's not going to be easy because just for the reason you say, I mean, the Trump campaign uh, is still not happy at, at how this has turned out, and Trump holding the you know holding the leverage of power in terms of uh, the ability to facilitate or to not facilitate Biden's transition to the White House. I mean, right now it looks like they're not going to lift a finger to help him. This is this is very much not the American tradition. There are a lot of protocols in place for when 
somebody is ascending to the presidency, and that includes the sitting president understanding that the basis of American government is peaceful transition and helping with that. I mean, it seems almost like, you know, it's, it's surprising and disappointing, I think, um, for some people to see that Trump won't even give Biden, like, his phone messages from other countries who are congratulating him. They have to go about doing it. It's, it's a very strange, wasn't it? There's been uh, traditions trashed all over the place. Look, uh, we were going to talk about the tourism situation in Boston, but we <laughs> it's been too interesting talking about this stuff. Look, thank you very much this morning for your time, Celeste. Appreciate it.